Hi, my name is Elle. And I'm Jared. And you are listening to the New Leaf Project. Thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out with us today. We have got an interview that Mr. Siebert did with Leonard Anderson. What a great name, Leonard. Yep. He is the Reverend Leonard Anderson. He is uh, the pastor at the Meeting Place in Hammond Plains, Nova Scotia. I really, I love uh, when we have guests from Atlantic Canada. And this uh, interview was brought to us by uh, Keitha Ogbwagu. And she she spoke at uh, In the Company of Women uh, in 2017. Absolutely brilliant pastor. Absolutely brilliant woman. She blogs for us quite frequently. And this was a story that we just couldn't pass up. It's so good. It's a two-parter. So get ready for that. Uh, part one, we're, we're, we're finding out who Lennon is. And, and they got involved in some very uh, thorny issues in Nova Scotia. And uh, this, is a very, um, this is a very difficult story. And uh, I, hope, I, hope you, I hope you hear from us that, that we want to highlight not just the good stories in Canada, but sometimes the challenging ones too. And uh, the story of Africville in in uh, Halifax is a very, very difficult story. And it's it continues to be a very difficult story. And that's what Lennett and Keitha help us walk through. So this is a, give this one a listen. This is going to be a part one of a part two or a two-part uh, episode. So check it out. Hello, everybody. We're here on the New Leaf Project, and I have very two very special guests, one of them in the studio with me, which is actually my dining room. <laughs> that is Keitha Ogbuagu, and she uh, she was at the In the Company Women event in May. She totally killed it. Uh, and we also have Lennon Anderson with us, and he is meeting with us via uh, the internet. Uh, he's in Nova Scotia right now. So uh, tell, uh, tell me a little bit, Keitha, about how you and Lennon got connected and, 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 and how your story began. So in, uh, I believe it was 2004, I decided to head out to Nova Scotia to take on a teaching job. And uh, when I got there, I wanted to go to a church and I wanted to find a church. And I remember I met this, this guy on the street and I was talking to him about looking for a church. And he said, I know the perfect church for you to go to pick me up tomorrow. And I foolishly said, okay. (laughs) And I picked this person up a little bit scared that I was not going to make it anywhere. Um, And he took me to Hammond's plane to uh, Emmanuel Baptist church. And I heard uh, Lennon Anderson preach, and I have never heard someone preach like that before. And it was amazing. And I was like, I'm hooked. And uh, I remember those were the days when uh, Emmanuel Baptist was in the smaller portion uh, in their older building. And there were lineups to get into the church. And I remember the fire marshal used to try and be like, uh... Easy, everyone, uh, you have limits on your space and you have to cut it off. So every every pastor's dream is that the fire marshal's like, too many people in the building. Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, now, give us a little bit of context, Lynette. Where Where is your church? Emmanuel Baptist Church is located in the historic Black community of Upper Hammonds Plains in Nova Scotia. Uh, and so we're at the East Coast. We're about 30 minutes outside of the downtown proper, Halifax. Okay, and, uh, but it is a historic 
um, black community that was founded by free refugees from the War of 1812. So tell, tell us a little bit about that history, because that's not a history that I'm particularly uh, familiar with myself. So. Well, we just celebrated 172 years of our Christian witness here at Emmanuel Baptist. And wow, congratulations. Thank you so much. And I am the 19th pastor to serve this great fellowship. Um, again, um, we, we found out that the church was placed uh, beside the graveyard because uh, during the expansion of the new building, the new edifice, uh, we were uh, in construction, the, the trucks were here leveling out the ground, and all of a sudden everything came to a halt. Wow. And we rediscovered the resting place of the first settlers. Wow. Um, they said, uh, Pastor, uh, we think we found a grave. And I said, no, there's no grave around here. And they said, well, there's stones erected for line symmetry. And I tell you, um, Jared, I put on my boots, ran into the woods, and this, this very sacred moment um, overwhelmed me. And, and I knelt down and I could see as far as my eye, um, just symmetry of stones with names carved in it. I never heard the oral history that there was a graveyard by the church. And so as I'm pulling down um, the grass and the moss that grew on the stones, I pull down and I see Thomas Anderson, 1827. Wow. Because I know my lineage, <laughs> I knew that that was my great, great, great grandfather. And that was the first rock. I just, I just picked that stone and I went over and I, you wow. know, moved and, and tears. I was like a baby. I just, I could not believe. And so, as I said, the church was erected in 1845, but here it is 1827 that uh, he's laid to rest. And so they built the church beside the cemetery and not put the cemetery by the church. Wow. By the way, but that's the story. So came as free refugee slaves, the War of 1812. Uh, many came from Virginia, Baltimore, uh, Chesapeake Bay area. Um, Britain said, if you fight for us against the Americans, you know, we'll give you freedom in Canada. And uh, we headed north. Canada is that and, and so so that was a, a mass migration how many people would you say came in that migration? I don't know the numbers that actually uh, I do know historically that w when they arrived on the shores of Halifax Harbor 1,000 went to Preston and 500 came uh, the Hammonds Plains now the larger migration was that of the black loyalists that predated us uh, and they were in the late 1700s, but they arrived around the Shelburne area. Um, you would know the movie, the recent movie of the Book of Negroes, uh, listing all of those that came as black loyalists, again, with Britain influence. And you're saying that this, is, this, is, this information has been passed down in, a, in an oral history. Uh, so talk about the role of that oral history in, in your community. Well, um, as one that uh, went through our education systems, I, I was never taught 
uh, our arrival, our contributions to the society here. Uh, we do not see ourselves as African Nova Scotia learners. We do not see ourselves in the history, the written history of Nova Scotia. And mm -hmm. so it is the community that keeps our story alive. It is a rich oral history. Now, I, I love the research just to make sure that we don't um, <laughs> you know, make the story more colorful. I want facts, <laughs> I want dates, I want documents. So um, actually I found what ships we arrived on, what months we came, the registry and so forth. But this is a communal experience where we would have the matriarchs, the patriarchs, the elders of the community continue to tell the story because the phraseology would be the struggle is real. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, many times you, we don't know um, if they're talking about a dated story or a current situation. Is that right? That is still the cultural temperature in Atlantic Canada. Many, uh, many times when I share my story with Americans or for people from uh, Old West, Western Canada, they would say, surely Leonard is 2017. Like, are you joking? And, and it's not a joke. So in another episode, I'd like to talk about what, what's been going on for you and your church currently. But as you discover uh, that your church is, is situated beside this graveyard, um, and you realize there's a missing history uh, and, and, and a part of your story and a part of your identity uh, has disappeared in the process. What did you, what did you do ab about that situation? How did, you, how did you respond? Well, we responded by getting, uh, we appealed for government funding so that we could empower our youth to go and interview the elders because uh, they were passing at a rate and, and with them, died their stories. And so we needed to capture and find a creative way to capture and write down these stories. We, we are a rich community. I am a proud African Nova Scotian. And there are so many firsts. For four houses up from um, the church is the Wiley Mill. And the Wiley Mill is the oldest, longest black business in Canada. You know, it is seven generation business and uh, they have served the Maritimes, uh, making boxes and, and uh, for fishery. But again, that story was not captured. Um, up the road from the church, so, you know, the church is in the center of the community, so we talk about down the road, back the road, off the road. <laughs> but uh, up the road, we have the first all black volunteer fire department in North America. Mm -hmm. This is rich. Like the fact that um, our houses were catching on fire, but the community, uh, the lower Hammonds Plains community would not respond or would not respond in an adequate time. And so many of our homes were lost to fire and damage. And it was because of the political climate of that day um, that they would not enter into a black community and put on fire. So it was the men and the community of the church, uh, the member of the church. Uh, actually, one of our elders donated the land. Miss um, Mantley donated the land. So now we have a plaque uh, in honor of her. And the men built the fire hall. And when all that was in place, then the province donated a fire truck. And, and again, but this is 
1967. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not talking uh, 1900, you know. And, and so when our youth captured these oral stories and started documenting and writing down, uh, we got funding to create monuments through Ota community. So there's a monument in front of the church talking about what ships we came on. There's a monument in front of the Wiley Mill talking about the longest serving black business. There's a monument in front of the fire hall talking about uh, the first all black uh, fire department in North America. And so even the land that we are on was uh, crown land that the queen gave uh, in honor of us coming as freed refugees. And so the church is land rich in that we were granted 31 acres of land. In this day of churches not having parking lots and people parking down the streets. And so God has blessed us that way, but all of that has been shared orally. And we had to write those down and get the monuments in place. And so we're, doing, we're trying to keep it alive. We're trying. That's a very Old Testament practice to, uh, to mark the places where where uh, God and his people have acted. And uh, that's a very beautiful thing, because that's, that's honestly, I believe, how the, the nation of Israel was founded, is around those monuments and that kind of a thing. So, so Keith, tell me uh, a little bit about some of your early experiences of, of going to this church and, and the impact it had on you. You, you grew up in Sudbury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just tell us a little bit about, about your experience and then, and then moving into... Uh, uh, when you first met Leonard? Well, I grew up in Northern Ontario, uh, right in the middle of rocks and mines. And I remember being one of the few black families um, in the Sudbury area. I think my parents probably knew almost every black family around. Um, And uh, so we grew up in that. We grew up uh, really in a very white society. And so going to Nova Scotia, uh, and uh, being a part of that congregation for those uh, two years that I lived there, it was remarkable. It was, uh, I remember saying, this is like the churches you see on TV. <laughs> 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 it was quite different from what I'd grown up with. Very lively, very fun. Um, but what was so interesting too was just this um, connection that you have by finding people who have this kind of common roots. So, you know, the church is, is multicultural, so there were people who have Caribbean roots, such as myself, and then you had these long-time, um, these long-time Canadians who had been part of the Canadian culture much longer than my family. Um, but it was a history that I as well, you know, hearing you talk about it not being written, um, I had not really heard about that. I remember reading one poem in high school about Africville and being shocked by it, um, but never, ever really understanding that Canada have these deep pockets of Black history. Um, and so that was probably one of the most interesting things about about being present there, is recognizing we have a place here. We're, we're not just um, immigrants trying to make it. Uh, we're not um, outsiders, but we are a part of, of history and of culture um, in Canada. And we make up a great part of that. And so... Yeah, that was really inspiring just to understand that there was this deeper history uh, to who Canada is and what it means to be black in Canada. Let's dig into that a little bit more, especially around the history. So I, I fully admit I went to this. I had the same education as, as you two did in that 
I didn't know any of this stuff either. And and I, Africville is honestly the only part of the story that I even have a passing familiarity with. So probably there's a lot of our listeners that are just like the three of us and aren't aware of this history. So could you guys talk a little bit more about the Africville history? Uh, Lennon, you, you, you actually do work in schools educating uh, young people about our history. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Africville story? Well, listen, Africville um, was a community that was so vibrant. Uh, all of the Black communities have their own personality. But since we're talking about church and spirituality, Africville was known as the Jumper Church. You went there, you did not go to sleep. I mean, there was an energy and there was a joy that was unspeakable. There, there was a joy that was full of glory. It really was. And, and um, so a rich community. And what, what breaks my heart is that many of the pictures that are shown of, of the community uh, were taken to taint it in a negative way. Mm. And that maybe the accommodations were not the best. You know, uh, uh, but not everyone house looked like that. There were some beautiful homes, but you know, you would go in and you would take a picture of of the worst condition. You know, the house that needed painting, or the house that the steps were deteriorating. Oh, that's Africville snack. You know, uh, and that was not the essence. We are a proud people that say the spirit lives on. Actually, it was descendants, um, residents in Upper Hammers Plains that moved back to the city and first purchased land in Africville. My great-great-great-great-grandfather on my grandmother's side, William Brown and his wife Priscilla were the first landowners in Africville. They would make it sound like we were just squatting the land, that we were just occupying the, the, the Halifax Basin. And I understand why the city would want that. That is prime real estate. You know, the cruise ships come in, the warships come in. It, it is right on the waterfront. It is beautiful. But many of our men had fishing boats. They, they, they had fishing as careers. Um, this was a rich community that was proud and, and that it was a communal. We were better together. Um, what was disheartening is, is the backstory of, of how things progressed and deteriorated so quickly because the city wanted the property. Instead of, um, uh, instead of improving our quality of living, they would say, well, you know, you don't have running water, so let's build public housing and put everyone in public housing uh, instead of giving us running water. Uh, and so um, as I recount the oral stories, because I'm too young, this is a 60 reality. I'm a 70s baby. But as I recount the elders telling uh, the story of Africville, they would make mention of Lennon. You know, they would put the train track through the community mm -hmm. in an attempt to get us to move. Um, some of our children died playing on the train track, tragic. Mm -hmm. You know, they said they placed the garbage dump in the community. Uh, so again, rat infested so that we would uh, move. You know, they really wanted to build another bridge to Dartmouth. Halifax to Dartmouth is now the McKay Bridge. Um, uh, they came and bulldozed the church. 
in the middle of the night. The mm -hmm. church is the sacred place, you know? And so I remember driving with my grandmother across the bridge and thinking like, uh, she started crying and I'm thinking, is the driving that bad that she's crying while we're not, you know, and, and she said, I don't want you to forget. Yeah. This is where you're from. Yeah. This is where my mother is buried, you know, and, and there's no place to lay roses or flowers because it was just desecrated. Mm. And, 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 and to see that it was turned into a park um, and many of our um, uh, poets uh, started writing, making fun that they took our community to make it a dog walk park uh, so that dogs can run around. And this is the very place where our homesteads were. And so that's, that's why I say many hurtful things were done. So pa Kavri was actually in the living room when the bulldoze came in through the, through the kitchen wall. And, and then for those that were willing to move, for those that did receive um, their suitcase of money or, or a check. Um, they didn't send moving trucks. They sent garbage trucks. Wow. And so people were putting their sofas, their dining room sets on the back of a garbage truck mm -hmm. and being shipped out of their community to public housing. Um, even to hear the elders talk about it, um, their voice still cracks. Tears still well up in their eyes. In 2017, we just celebrated. Um, this was the 50th year. Um, we didn't celebrate the destruction of the church, but we wanted to commemorate. So at Easter, all the churches came together and went back and, and, and had a service on the grounds to say it was 50 years this year that the church was taken away, that we had our last service here. What an emotional, what a high-spirited. And yet we said, great is thy faithfulness, yeah. but we're still here. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think is at, at the root of that destruction? I mean, because, I mean, we can say it's just about land, but, but is there something bigger at play? Oh, there's so much more. Um, when we recount the injustices, like like this podcast is all long enough to capture the real essence of the story and the untold story, how, how now that we have the freedom of information and we can secure um, the paperwork, you can see people uh, marking old dates and trying to change the dates because uh, things were done before the approval was given. So you mean the city of Halifax? That's correct. Yeah, if, if we could just slow, just because we do have, we have American listeners as well. So if, if you're not sure what we're actually talking about, the capital of Nova Scotia is Halifax. Did I got that right? That's okay. correct. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a very prominent bridge that, that connects two cities together, and that's Dartmouth and, and Halifax. And it was the land underneath where the bridge was built that uh, all of these African settlers, they, are, they had purchased the land uh, and it was taken away from them by the city and all of those things that Lennon just mentioned. And then uh, that history almost disappeared as well. And I think, I, I think Keitha, you're asking a really important question. What is underneath 
all of this? What's what's going on? Well, and I'm so glad to report that the mayor of the city, and and that was an emotional day, but actually uh, gave public apology mm-hmm. for uh, the racial uh, racist, sorry, acts. Um, towards the African Nova Scotia residents of Africville. What a, for, for there to be an acknowledgement. It's one thing for us, the descendants, to say what well, we thought the motive, but for the mayor, for the city council to, to verbalize and to acknowledge the ill treatment, the injustice, the racial attitudes and the climate of that day, and that there was a hidden agenda, mm. right? Um, even to, uh, to move people from ownership to um, there's still people paying every month to live in public housing, you know, and, and so um, they don't own that. And so you went from an owner to a renter and, and you lost everything. And that would have such long lasting effects on the next generation. Uh, to lose the power of ownership. Yes, trauma, trauma. It, it was a traumatic. And, and I know today we talk about post-traumatic stress, and, 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 but I can tell you um, there are many that are still living with this trauma. Um, and, and it has manifested in so many ways. It is manifested in the educational system, in the justice system, uh, economically, poverty. Um, it has scarred those uh, for life. And so long as these stories continue to go untold and, you know, being raised in the Canadian education system, if we don't have this history. Uh, it, it, it then erases the trauma and then it creates, I think, further racial tension uh, because, you know, there's, there's some sense uh, at which, you know, uh, when you don't have your history and you, you don't have your facts straight, uh, trying to understand how people are acting in the present when you don't know that this had happened, it's, it's impossible. It, it, it seems strange. It seems uh, discordant. It's, it seems there's a disconnect there. So this is very powerful. So you discover in your lifetime the depths to which uh, your community's own history, your church's even uh, its own history has been erased. And one of your key responses has been to get the young people together to get the funding. So what's happening now uh, as a part of, of your church in terms of, of preserving the history? It, do you have any sense of, of wanting to move it from just oral history to written history? Or does that change the story somehow? Um, no, and we are definitely um, uh, moving uh, this intentionally, securing the stories, writing them down, documenting, as you said, the whole emphasis on monuments, uh, lest we forget. One of the great things that came with the acknowledgement and the apology from the government officials uh, is that an office was created in Halifax Regional Municipality called the African Nova Scotian Integration Office to make sure that that this history would never be repeated. Mm -hmm. One of the things to the residents 
one of the things that was promised to the residents of, of Africville is that this government will have a race relations department that will help us interact with the black community in Nova Scotia. And so uh, I am proud to say that that, that office is up, is running, it, uh, is staffed by members of the community, uh, working with HRM, Halifax Regional Municipality, um, creating a way forward. It's really staffed by visionary leaders. And so working for a better day. So that's why I'm hopeful. I, I want to acknowledge the pain, but I refuse to be a victim. I'm a victor. And so, uh, you know, I, I say all the time, like photography, let's develop from the negatives. And so how can we progress? How can we move forward? How can we make sure that history will not repeat? So yes, we have the African, we have the Office of African Nova Scotia Affairs, that's at the provincial level, but we also have an office at the municipal level. And we're very intentional of, of taking a collaborative approach because it's going to all hands on deck. We need every level of government to be on board. We need the community in, on board. We need police and, and, and agencies um, to move us and our province forward. Can you, uh, I hope I don't take us too far backwards, but in the midst of all of these stories, um, when you talk about the churches um, being involved in the, the, the churches rallying around these issues. You're speaking specifically about the African United Baptist Association. Is that correct? Yes. The African United Baptist Association, I currently serve as the moderator, wearing so many hats. Oh, my goodness. But as moderator of this great association, it is every Black com uh, community has a Baptist church in it. And so uh, I, I am the moderator of about 19 churches that's provincial throughout the province of Nova Scotia. And uh, it was established in 1854. And so we just had our, um, we just had our annual sessions. We meet every August. I'm trying to think, I, I just, I don't even have, uh, every August we meet, the third weekend in August, all the churches come together. But what I pride my, uh, this whole association um, is rich in history. It's the longest serving institution, Black institution in Nova Scotia. And, and so many times I'm invited to the table, whether it's the uh, diversity uh, table on policing, uh, whether the premier is inviting me to meetings, uh, the mayor, um, because of the advocacy uh, of the African Association, they have always been uh, the voice for the people, the community, the church, uh, the clergy have always um, been at the forefront of fighting for educational advancements, um, the transitional year programs, uh, equality in our society. Um, and so, so many doors have all opened because of the presence of the church. And I think that the church needs to regain its prophetic voice in speaking to societal ills. We have to address it. Uh, you know, we have to be the prophet in the land. 
And, and so uh, I am privileged to serve as moderator of the African United Baptist Association in this season. All right. That was Leonard Anderson and our very own Keith Ogbwagu, uh talking about the history of, of race relations in Canada. Often, L, uh, in Canada, we like to imagine that we don't have a race problem here. We like to even imagine that we had no connection to slavery. But uh, folks like Lennett are doing an incredible uh, work of preserving our history and helping us understand it. And I am so excited uh, to have him on the podcast. I think this was an amazing find. So Keith, if you're listening, thanks for bringing Lennett to our attention. Uh, what an amazing interview. Um, L, if people want to stay tuned to this story, stay tuned to what's going on in the New Leaf Network and the kinds of stories that we tell, how do they do it? Best way to keep up with us would be our website, newleafnetwork.ca. This is a two-part interview, so we're definitely going to have the second part coming up, um, and you'll be able to um, click on to that one from our show page or the podcast page. We update Facebook pretty regularly, letting you know what's going on, and if you're a person like me that enjoys emails uh, that come to your inbox, we also have one of those that comes out every few months, so sign up for that. We want to keep you updated about all the great things that are happening in the New Leaf Network. It's going to be a busy year. We want to see you out, out and we would love to meet you in person. So um, keep up with us um, because we want to keep up with you. All right, friends. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.